Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, great to be gathered together and worshiping with you. If you're new, welcome. Uh, we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, there's actually Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, you can grab one on the way in. And if you don't own a Bible, um, feel free to take one of those home and make it yours. We're continuing in the book of Matthew, so if you do have a Bible or an app, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, and we'll get started there in a moment. Over the last few weeks, we have studied a series of events that have unfolded around the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus spent most of his recorded life and ministry. After John the Baptist is killed, uh, Jesus is forced to flee to the other side of the lake where he's uh, met by Jewish crowds. He heals the masses and miraculously feeds over 5,000 people. These crowds, in response, want to force him to be king of Israel. But they misunderstood Jesus' true identity and the type of king that he was to be. Moving from there, Jesus clashes with some of the Pharisees in a passage that we studied last week, the Bible teachers of his day who have come out to this remote place in order to kind of challenge him. And after giving a scathing critique of the Pharisees and their practices, he's going to continue in his ministry of healing and blessing the crowds. Although this week, we enter into a new type of tension between Jesus and the crowds, which I am excited to unpack with you this morning. So we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. It says this, it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. 
Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they, in turn, to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Before we continue, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the scriptures and for the account that they give of your life. And that thousands of years later, we can look into specific conversations that you had with real people in real time. And I pray that as we unpack these verses, that we uh, would feel ourselves in this place and that you would give us a sense of what the original crowds and what the original disciples might have felt in the midst of a situation that appears very confusing to us a couple thousand years later. And so would you, through this process, Jesus, open our eyes, open our hearts to who you truly are. May we have a compelling and accurate vision as we gather together in your name. Amen. So, Jesus continues in his mission of healing and blessing and telling people about the inbreaking kingdom of God, which is now coming to bear on this reality in and through Him. Time and time again, as we read through the gospel accounts, we are confronted with the radical grace of Jesus, showing compassion on the crowds and blessing the unworthy and inviting in the marginalized. On almost every page, we see Jesus blessing people that do not deserve blessing. And we are confronted with the radical grace and love of God. On almost every page. Except, perhaps, this page. Our passage this morning starts with a woman crying out in need. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And we're told that in response, Jesus did not answer a word. Clearly, he doesn't want anything to do with this woman, and he won't even acknowledge that she exists. The disciples catch on pretty quickly as they themselves likely see her as a nuisance. And so the text says that they urge him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. She's being annoying. Make her leave. She's annoying us. I'm pretty sure she's annoying you. Send her out of here. 
which, if you've been paying attention through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll remember that almost identical scenarios have unfolded before. Jesus is pressing into a new city, and two blind beggars are by the road crying out in the same language, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. The disciples rebuke them. Shut up. Go away. He doesn't have time for you. And in that situation, Jesus stops the entire procession, makes all of the crowd stand and wait as he calls the two blind men down to the center and blesses them and forgives them and heals them inside and out in that moment. And they become followers of Jesus from that day forward. It's this beautiful scene. But in today's passage, we have what seems at first glance to be a similar scenario. Jesus is pressing into a new area. The crowds begin to gather. The disciples are annoyed by a person in need who cries out using the same language as the blind beggars. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And apparently that answer wasn't totally convincing because the woman came closer instead of leaving and and she knelt before him and again cried out, Lord, help me. I mean, this is a bold and desperate move and it's the kind that Jesus usually honors. But again, he replies even more vividly It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What? I mean, is this the Jesus of the Gospels? Is he finally breaking character? Is he at last having a truly bad day? I mean, he was fully human. Would it be unthinkable that on this particular occasion, he was hangry? (laughs) I mean, if this were a Snickers commercial, this would be the moment that one of the disciples like busts out the Snickers bar, right? And says, oh, we forgot to feed him. Wait, like Jesus, have this. Get your blood sugar up. Then we'll help this lady. What's going on? I mean, why is Jesus being so rude? Does he have the ability to heal and cast out demons? Of course. He's been doing it all along. In fact, we're told that the reason that Jesus came into the world was to destroy the devil's work. This is his bread and butter. He loves seeing people liberated and set free. So why this response? And the answer, in part, involves the big picture story of the Bible. Because as a snapshot, it seems like rudeness, if not racism, 
on the part of Jesus. But as we widen the lens and place this in its proper context, we begin to see just what it is that Jesus is doing. So, we'll start from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Humanity was with God in His presence and in unique and uninterrupted relationship with Him. In fact, we're told that humanity was created in God's image, as if our purpose was to reflect the nature of the invisible God into the physical, visible realm. We were to be living, breathing reflections of the God who created us. And and we were to be in His presence along the way. To quote the Westminster Catechism, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we rebelled against God and set ourselves up as His enemies, opting instead to govern ourselves and to decide for ourselves what is good and evil, which, ironically, we still think we're really good at it, and we're really not. But by taking that autonomy into our own hands and rebelling against God, we plunge God's good creation into a state of chaos and darkness. And God, rather than just scrapping the entire creation project, sets out to redeem it. Now, this redemption plan is curiously centered around a man named Abraham. And and God chooses Abraham and, and makes a covenant with him. This is in the opening pages of Scripture. Abraham is chosen. And, and he blesses Abraham and tells Abraham that he's going to make Abraham a blessing. And that through Abraham and his family line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, we have global rebellion... And we have God setting about the work of global redemption. All in the opening pages of the Scripture. But the rest of Scripture is going to center around this family line that comes from Abraham, which eventually grows and grows until it becomes a nation which we call Israel. And Israel is is to stay close to God to to walk in His ways, to once again reflect His nature into the physical, visible world. And God's design for Israel, we're told, is that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, such that all the other nations on earth would be blessed through them. So God still has global humanity and global blessing in mind as you read through the story of the Scriptures. But it is to come through this specific family line, which by default becomes the center of the plot line. The issue is that Israel is so central to the plot line that they think they're the center. 
they think, in a sense, that they are the end game. God loves us. He wants to bless us. We're His people. You are not. I'm not so sure God wants to bless you. I'm not so sure that He loves you. He's for us here in this place. He's not for those people out there. They are Gentiles by birth. Non-Jewish people, pagans, a little higher than the beasts of the field. We are sons of Abraham, children of the promise. We are the very people of God. And so you see this tension playing itself out throughout the Gospels, if not all of Scripture. The question then becomes... Is Jesus simply reinforcing these attitudes? Because in the opening lines of today's passage, we're told that Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And that a Canaanite woman, a a non-Jewish Gentile outsider from that vicinity, came to him crying out. And the basis for Jesus' sharp rejection of this woman's request seems to be her ethnicity. Where she's from, what she's a part of, or in this case, what she's not a part of. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus says. And again, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. Is Jesus racist? I mean, is this the same Jesus who said, love your enemies? Is this the same Jesus who told the parable of the Good Samaritan, a non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan, enemy outsider who comes to the rescue and loves well while all of Israel fails to love as God intended. I mean, is the Good Samaritan better than Jesus? And the immediate answer is no. It's not that Jesus is having a bad day. It's that Jesus is clarifying his mission. He was not a traveling doctor who simply wandered around healing any sick person that he came across, but rather he had a specific calling. God's people, Israel, needed to know that their God was at last fulfilling his promises, that the kingdom for which they had longed was at last beginning to appear, and that Jesus himself was their anointed king. To not focus this message on Israel itself would be, in a sense, to imply that God had made a mistake in choosing Israel as the unique promise-bearers through whom 
God's word and God's life were to flow to the nations. Jesus didn't come to disband Israel, but rather to fulfill Israel's true purpose and the reason they existed in the first place. If God's life was to flow to all the nations on earth, then it would need to come through Israel, just as God had promised all the way back in Genesis. If Jesus and his disciples had just indiscriminately wandered among the nations, sharing this message about the kingdom of God, then there's a sense in which they would have made God a liar. It had to unfold in this way. Israel had to hear the message first because they were the central focus of his pre-resurrection mission. But this Canaanite woman was insistent. Lord, help me, she said. And Jesus replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And listen to this response. Yes, it is, Lord. Okay, to be clear, this is her challenging Jesus and wrestling for His blessing. If you were here two weeks ago, we talked about chutzpah, which I mispronounced chutzpah. Mo- that's kind of funny. You can laugh. Mostly because I'm not Jewish. I, I mispronounce it. Okay? But chutzpah is the aspect of faith that is expressed as headstrong persistence, unyielding tenacity, or what we would call raw nerve. Jesus says, no, she comes closer. Jesus says, it's not right. And she says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs... Eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I mean, this woman is relentless. She has chutzpah. She, and, and finally, we get Jesus' response. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in that moment. And so once again, just like two weeks ago, we have Jesus responding to chutzpah, or or bold and determined faith. But, we also see that Jesus is in fact going to bless the Gentiles, or the non-Jewish world. And that, in a sense, that future is already beginning to break into the present in this moment. And in case you don't believe me, look at the text that follows. This is verse 29. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so to be clear, 
there are two sides to the Sea of Galilee. There is the Jewish Israel side, and there is the Gentile side. And by all accounts, Jesus is walking through the Gentile, enemy, non-Jewish side of the lake. And so these people that he's encountering are not part of ethnic Israel. And yet we're told that great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Okay, so, so to touch many of these types of people within Israel could have been considered a, a source of defilement, if you were here last week. But, but to touch and heal these people in, in the Gentile pagan lands is almost unthinkable. And yet that's precisely what Jesus is doing. He touches them and He heals them. And then He called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion for these people. And what follows is that Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 plus people on the Gentile side of the lake, just as he did on the Jewish side with their crowds. And the implication of this activity was, was stunningly clear. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah of the Jews who have been waiting for me, and yet... I am here to bless the Gentiles as well. And in fact, there will be many among them who recognize who I truly am and who place their faith in me and come to follow me. They will see me as, as Messiah and provider and king. And we're told that the crowds, quote, praise the God of Israel. As was always intended to be the case. Jesus comes as the true Israelite to recapture the vocation of the Jewish nation. They were to be a blessing to the nations, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that channeled God's love and blessing and presence and forgiveness into all nations, fulfilling the promise of Abraham and causing people all over the planet to, quote, praise the God of Israel. That was their purpose. Jesus comes as the true human being, fully reflecting God's image and blessing and goodness as we were intended to do. And in doing so, he recaptures what humanity had lost so long ago. And as he recaptures Israel's purpose and recaptures humanity's purpose, he simultaneously fulfills the covenant of Abraham by becoming the very person through whom all the nations on earth will at last be blessed. This is why He came. That He might hang on a cross 
and become a curse for us so that we might become blessable and blessed and then ourselves become agents of blessing that would carry the cross and the gospel into the nations in fulfillment of what was spoken to Abraham so long ago. And so as you read through the Gospels, you get to the climax of their story, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you get past the resurrection and into the book of Acts, you see that the resurrection actually acted like this springboard. It launched this whole new, energized, spirit-filled kingdom movement that begins to ripple outward. But at this point, they're still thinking, This is for the Jews of the nations. But one of the most startling things from their perspective is that right after the resurrection, Peter is sent by God to go share the gospel with Gentiles and to eat with them. Which in the ancient Near East is this intimate act. A faithful Jew was never to eat a meal with their non-believe, with their Jewish, our non-Jewish counterparts, that that just that just wasn't allowed. It was out of the question, and yet he's sent to share the gospel with them, and, and to eat with them, and they come to believe in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and suddenly the whole world opens up at their fingertips. My goodness. This isn't just for the Jews, though certainly they're in a unique position to appreciate who Jesus is. This is bigger than the biological family of Abraham. This is bigger than the Jewish religion as we've known it. It's global. It's for all people and all nations on earth. And as the gospel ripples outward and and invades new cultures, what it does when it enters that culture is is that it wrecks the social boundaries and cultural divisions that we hold to so dearly. In fact, we're told that the gospel of Jesus tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, forming from those fragments one new humanity in Christ. And that there's a sense in which there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, and in fact, these people can now sit next to each other in church. This was stunning in the ancient world. Unprecedented, unheard of. And so the Canaanite woman in today's passage is not begging God to do something that he has no heart to do. But rather, she's jumping the gun. Jesus and his disciples are not yet ready to face the cross. And she's pretending like it's Easter. She's saying, hey, you are the son of David, which was this ancient way of saying, you're the messianic king that Israel has waited for. But if that's true, 
then that means that you are here to bless the nations and I'm ready right now. And Jesus is blown away by her faith in who he truly is. And so the very passage that seems at the start to reveal Jesus' cultural bias actually ends up being this powerful glimpse into the world that will be brought about through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a glimpse of that future world. This was the first step in taking the worldview of his disciples and flipping it upside down challenging everything that they've heard day in and day out since birth. The gospel, Jesus is saying, is for those people. The love of God is for those people. That God's grace and forgiveness and healing and new covenant and blessing aren't just for these people right here. It's for those people out there. They are not deserving. They are not unique. In fact, you may have perfectly good reasons never to cross to that side of the lake. Or that side of the street. But that doesn't change reality. It doesn't change the uncomfortable fact that Jesus died not just for you and me. Not just for the people of God who have now been adopted into the family of Abraham through this cross of Jesus. But it is also for them. It is for those people on that side of the lake, on that side of town, on the other side of those dividing walls of hostility that we sometimes call cubicles. The gospel of Jesus is for them. Even if the world says that they are undeserving, Even if the world says they are dogs, Jesus has come to give them scraps from the table. And more than that, to multiply those scraps into a feast for thousands. These Samaritans, these Canaanites, these people of Tyre and Sidon are in many ways the modern people of the Middle East. And by all measurable standards, God is doing something absolutely miraculous, perhaps unprecedented, all across the Middle East, right right now. The same Jesus is doing the same type of stuff among the same type of people. And there's tons of of miraculous stories coming out of the Middle East right now, but one of my favorite ones for our purposes this morning is a recent one of of a missionary who was in the Middle East and they showed up in a new 
uh, town or village, and they found a family in that town who was willing to, to take them in. And hospitality is, is huge in the Middle East. It wasn't the time of the scriptures and all the way through, central to their culture. And so this family said, oh yeah, like we, we have to take in this outsider. And, and according to their hospitality, they had to feed him as well. You have to like, oh, find a place for him to sleep and feed him and take care of him and all of his stuff. The problem was, they, all they had to eat for dinner that night was one mediocre bowl of macaroni. And they said, okay, well, we have an extra person here. We have to share it. And so the, the missionary uh, said, hey, can I, can I pray over the meal? And he, he proceeded to pray over the meal in the name of Isa al-Masi, which is the, the, the name given by the Quran for Jesus the Messiah. So in their, name, in, in their language, he's praying over the meal in the name of Jesus the Messiah. And they begin to eat the meal, and as they're eating the meal, the macaroni begins to multiply in their bowls. And they're eating and eating and eating, and their bowls are still full, even overflowing with macaroni. And this family is stunned, as I would be too, understandably, but they're completely stunned by what's happening. And, and they, they want to learn more. Who is, who is this Isa al-Masi? Who is this Jesus who's multiplying the food on our plates? We have to know. And eventually, they, they give their lives to Jesus. And, and the first designation that they have for him in their minds is that he's the God of macaroni. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Like, I, I don't know much about this Messiah. I don't know much about this Isa al-Masi, but I know he's the God of macaroni. As I imagine that these original Gentile outsider crowds might have said, I don't know much about this Jesus, but I know he's the Lord of bread. I know that he has miraculously provided for us today. Are Muslims in the Middle East the New Testament people of God? No. Are they insiders or outsiders? Outsiders. Are they the ones you think might be sitting squarely under God's desire to call and to bless? If we're honest, probably not. And yet... He desires to bless those people and to call them to himself and he wants to use disciples of Jesus to do it. He wants to reconcile people who are on different sides of the dividing wall of current politics. He's for those people in that part of the world, holding those religious beliefs, voting for those, he's for those people. For many of us, the poor in Africa 
are the stereotypical economic, cultural, almost spiritual uh, underdogs in the world. The ones on the fringes, the ones on the other side of the lake. And our friend uh, Steve Oliver, who I hope will uh, be here in June to visit the church, uh, he's born in South Africa, South African guy, ministering uh, among kind of the poorest of the poor in South Africa. And uh, as he's followed God's call to minister to those people, he has seen God move and provide in absolutely miraculous ways along the way. And on one occasion, uh, he had 40 or so people that wanted to uh, get baptized. And there's a little river that's um, not far from his property. So he said, hey, we'll take these people and kind of their friends and families, uh, and, and we can head down to this river and, and try to baptize them. The problem was that based on the season, the river was essentially a, a dry riverbed. And so he, he, he sent a couple of his friends ahead and from his team. He said, hey, you guys, you guys head down there to the river and try and dig a hole. Like if you can almost make like a little well, we might be able to pool enough water to try and baptize some people w- when they get down there. Like God, God wants these people to be baptized. We've got to be obedient. We've got we to gotta go. And so um, they, he has this group, which is maybe 200 people, and they're heading down to the river. And as they near the riverbed, he sees his team members just kind of hanging out under a tree. He says, guys, what are you doing? Why are you sitting here? You were supposed to go down to the river and, and, and dig a hole so that we can baptize people. And they said, Steve, come, come and see. And they came down to the river, and sure enough, there was water in the river, and the water level was rising in the middle of this dry season. And so he says, okay, let's go. And it got up to three or four feet or whatever they needed to start baptizing people. So they're baptizing people and they're celebrating and they're cheering. And as the last person steps out of the river and they finish the baptisms, the water begins to drain from the river. And it slowly goes back to a dry riverbed. But but what happens God was showing, hey, I'm for these people in in this place. The the ones out on the fringes, the ones that perhaps you've forgotten about, the Muslims in the Middle East, these poor of the poor out on the fringes of African society. I, I see those people, the gospel is for those people. And as followers of Jesus step out in faith and obedience, God met them in that place with those people. And I think the problem is that too often we sit in fear and uncertainty during the very times and places that God is calling us to step out in faith. Too often, God is waiting out there with those people on the other side of the lake, on the other side of our faithful obedience, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, on the other side of the street, on the other side of the cubicle wall. He's waiting for us to go in faith and obedience so that he can bless those people. 
even miraculously. And I'd love to imagine that that Middle Eastern family ended the evening with seven little bowls of leftover macaroni. And I'd love to imagine that Steve Oliver and his friends filled up seven buckets of water before the river receded. But I can bet that the first disciples stared in wonder and awe at seven baskets of leftover bread as they looked out over the Sea of Galilee and began to contemplate deeply just what this event might mean for the world, for the Gentiles, and for those people out there. Let's pray. Jesus, we, I, want to start this morning by coming to you in, in repentance of saying that um, far too often I have slipped into that all-too-human mentality that Israel carried. That you love us, which is true. That you want to bless us, which is true. And sometimes I just kind of stop there and say, Jesus, what do, you, what do you have for me? What do you have for my friends who are your followers? What do you have for our, our church? And, and sometimes I forget your heart for those people out there, the, the undeserving ones that we all were at one time, the, the, the ones who appear unblessable, the ones who seem to want nothing to do with you or to be unworthy of our time. And yet, what we see in this passage is, is a faithful woman coming to you in bold determination and, and causing the future to break into the present, ahead of schedule. And, and, and you began to implement something um, that was only to come in full after your resurrection, that all peoples on the earth will be blessed. And as most of us sit in this room as non-Jewish Gentile people, we recognize that we should have been outsiders. And in fact, we were. That, that we weren't part of the family of Abraham. That we weren't natural inheritors or promise bearers. And yet, when we were far away, you drew us near. And when we were dead, you brought us to life. And, and you adopted us into the family of Abraham, not just so that we would be blessable and blessed, hallelujah for that, but also so that we would join in your mission to the world of them looking out and say, who else is undeserving? Who else seems unblessable? Surely, Jesus, those are the people that you want us to go and bless. Would you open our eyes, yes, first and foremost, to what the cross has done in making us blessable and blessed. For you have cleansed us of all our sin. You have not withheld anything from us, but you pour out in abundance what it is we so deeply need. 
And yet, God, would we never stop with ourselves. Open our eyes to the people on the other side of the cubicle wall, to the people who live across the street whose names we don't know, to the people on the other side of town, in that neighborhood, in that city, in that nation. God, give us a heart for those people. And may we have faith and trust that as we step out in obedience to bless the unblessable, that you will meet us in that place. And you will multiply what little we have to give, and it will be enough. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.